There comes a point when the right to vote requires a fight to vote. MSNBC Films presents Battleground Georgia, a story that explores the ugly history of voter suppression and how Georgia is leading the charge against it. Something has to change. The old South is being replaced by the new South. Battleground Georgia, part of the Turning Point documentary series from executive producer Trevor Noah. Sunday, May 19th at 9 p.m. Eastern on MSNBC. Tonight on The Readout. I've lost my name and I've lost my reputation. I've lost my sense of security. All because a group of people starting with number 45 and his ally, Rudy Giuliani, decided to scapegoat me. Donald Trump's repulsive attacks have already devastated the lives of people like Georgia election worker Ruby Freeman. Today, an appeals court heard arguments on the gag order designed to protect others from the wrath of Trump and his MAGA rabble. Also tonight, far-right Senator Mike Lee revives an old and thoroughly discredited conspiracy theory about January 6th. The very same Mike Lee, who says America is not a democracy. But we begin tonight with the expedited destruction of the Voting Rights Act. Earlier today, in a two-to-one decision, a panel of judges on the Eighth Circuit Court of Appeals said that only, only the federal government, not private citizens and civil rights groups, can sue under a key part of the Voting Rights Act, effectively gutting the legislation in seven states. The decision upheld a lower court ruling. The case sought to challenge Arkansas lawmakers redistricting in, in the state, where the Republican-controlled legislature drew 11 majority black districts in the state's 100-seat House of Representatives. The state is 16% black. For now, individuals in Arkansas, Iowa, Minnesota, Missouri, Nebraska, North Dakota, and South Dakota will have to rely on their politically elected attorneys general. And we know how that goes. The impact of this decision cannot be understated. What this panel is effectively saying is that nobody but the attorney general or the state, or the country, has standing to fight a Voting Rights Act violation. As NBC News puts it, the vast majority of claims are brought by private citizens and civil rights groups who foot the bill for time-consuming litigation to protect voting rights. The Department of Justice, with limited staff and resources, typically brings just a small fraction of the cases that are fought nationally. To make it even clearer, According to these judges, the NAACP, the League of Women Voters, the Native American Rights Fund, the ACLU, the League of United Latin American Citizens, and so many more have no right to sue on behalf of the people. What is the logic? Well, according to the majority of those judges who sound like every other Federalist Society judge crowing about originalist text, when Congress wrote and amended the Voting Rights Act. They never clearly stated that private parties have a right to sue. In their majority opinion, the Trump and Bush appointees write, if the 1965 Congress clearly intended to create a private right of action, then why not say so in the statute? If not then, why not later, when Congress amended Section 2? By their estimation, even the Supreme Court was flawed in hearing cases brought by these private plaintiffs, a point the lone dissenting judge made. That judge writes, admittedly, the court has never directly addressed the existence of a private right of action under Section 2. 
However, it has repeatedly considered such cases, held that private rights of action exist under other sections of the VRA, and concluded in other VRA cases that a private right of action exists under Section 2. Let's just be clear, this ruling is a massive upending of past decisions, or legal jargon, precedent. In this country for decades, and through more than 400 cases, the courts have found that the right to sue by these private groups has been assumed, as the Supreme Court recently showed us. Do not assume anything with the activist judges. Most of them told us that they believed in stare decisis, that lovely term to describe judicial reverence for precedent. But they didn't actually practice it, given the reversal of Roe v. Wade. There's probably another reason these judges were gutsy enough to ignore decades of precedent. And it is buried in another Voting Rights Act case that came before the Supreme Court. The clue is in the Brnovich versus Democratic National Committee case, which chipped away at the VRA back in 2021. In a concurring opinion written by Justice Neil Gorsuch, he seemingly signaled to the world and other conservative judges a willingness to upend the line of precedent. He wrote, Our cases have assumed, without deciding, that the Voting Rights Act of 1965 furnishes an implied cause of action under Section 2. Lower courts have treated this as an open question. And guess who co-signed that idea? You know, Justice Clarence Thomas. And that's where this case is likely headed, to a court that is intent upon bringing about the death of this seminal law. The decision is already having an immediate impact. Just last week, Native people in North Dakota successfully blocked a new map that diluted Native voting strength by drawing map boundaries that cracked apart communities. Because of this ruling, their victory is now reversed and the unfair map remains in place. Joining me now is Sherilyn Eiffel, former president and director counsel of the NAACP Legal Defense Fund. Sherilyn will launch the 14th Amendment Center for Law and Democracy at the Howard University School of Law next year. Sherilyn, my friend, I want you to first let me know, have I been hyperbolic in my reading of this as a direct attempt to destroy the Voting Rights Act? Good evening, Joy. Thank you for having me on. I would say that you have not been hyperbolic enough uh, in your description of what has happened here, because I think it's very important that we not blow past how this decision came to be at the Eighth Circuit. You've already alluded to uh, Justice Gorsuch's concurrence in the Brnovich case a few years ago, in which he mentioned uh, precisely the quote that you you stated. It was a paragraph, a paragraph of a concurrence. And it is from that paragraph that first the district court judge, Trump appointee Lee Rudofsky, decided on his own to raise the question of whether Section 2 provided for a private right of action and provided for the NAACP to sue in this case. So you have a lone district judge, a district judge bound by the decisions of the Court of Appeals, the the Eighth Circuit in this instance, and the Supreme Court, taking the words of one justice in a concurrence and deciding to center his uh, inquiry and decision-making on the opinion of that concurrence. Understand what happened in Brnovich. I have no doubt that Justice Gorsuch circulated his draft concurrence to his colleagues. He was not joined by them. 
That was not part of the majority opinion. It was not even a plurality opinion. It was his opinion. And one district judge understood that to be communicating something and decided to issue this decision. Then it goes to the Eighth Circuit Court of Appeals, and we get this decision two to one by David Strauss, another Trump appointee, and by the way, former Clarence Thomas clerk, uh, who enshrines this decision from the district court judge. And I raise all of this joy because this is an upending, an attack on the judicial process. It's one thing when it happens, as it did in the affirmative action case, when Justices Thomas and Alito's dissents in Fisher gave Ed Blum, a litigant, the idea that, as he put it, he needed an Asian American plaintiff, which is why he returned to the court in the Harvard and UNC cases, raising claims on behalf of Asian Americans. Once again, two justices were surmising, musing that affirmative action perhaps discriminated against Asian Americans. And that was enough to send Ed Blum off to to put together a new case with a new theory. And he was successful. But this is a judge doing it. This is a judge taking the line from one justice and deciding to upend the crown jewel statute of the civil rights era. And when I think, Joy, sometimes about the sacrifices, the blood, the sweat, the tears, the strategy that went behind creating this powerful and important statute that ushered in what we could even begin to call democracy in this country by ensuring that Black people could exercise the right to vote. When I think about the smallness of the men who believe that they can, with the stroke of a pen, eliminate the power of this movement and also eliminate the subsequent decades in which the Supreme Court has had an opportunity to address whether there could be a private right of action and has not, including in cases I litigated before the Supreme Court, Houston Lawyers Association versus Attorney General of Texas in 1991. And the Eighth Circuit had that chance in Jeffers versus Clinton, another case that I helped litigate in the early 1990s. This judge took it upon himself, the district judge and now the two judges on the Court of Appeals. I commend to people the dissent uh, written by Judge Levinsky Smith. He is the chief judge of the Eighth Circuit. He is a Black Bush-appointed judge uh, who I think rightly points out uh, how extraordinary this is and how contrary to uh, the history of the Supreme Court and to the legislative history of uh, the Voting Rights Act. You know, I I think about the fact that, as you said, you know, God bless him, uh, Eric Holder, when he was attorney general, sued some folks and sued some states uh, that were violating the Voting Rights Act. But many of the victories that we know of that have expanded access to the ballot have been filed by private litigants. It's the Milligan case in Alabama. Uh, Bishop Barber and his folks working with the LDF uh, in North Carolina. It is civil rights organizations that have done these lawsuits that have expanded access to the ballot. This court essentially is now saying that that people who want the right to vote, whether it's indigenous folks, whether it's African-Americans, whether it's Latinos, you have to depend on the attorney general of the United States or their attorney. If you're in Mississippi, your attorney is not going to do that. If you're in Arkansas, you know, your attorney general is not going to do that. So you, ha- it's, it, you have to rely on the grace of some attorney general in your state who you probably don't even you're redistricted so badly that you don't even have political power in those states. It's stunning to well, me. I, I, 
I got to read this more closely because I read this judge and this opinion as saying the attorney general, that is the attorney general of the United Just States. Just the one. And wow. And, and, you know, Joy, the whole, these civil rights statutes were explicitly designed to um, empower what they called private attorneys general, that is private organizations and individuals to be able to vindicate these claims because they understood that the Justice Department would not be able to vindicate all of these claims and in fact would not know. They are not on the ground in community as we are. And so they often don't learn uh, about these violations. We are the ones who bring it to their attention and we are the ones who litigate most of the cases. But as you point out, think about a time like when Trump was president. When Trump was president, the reason that you heard from me all the time is because I had decided that LDF, along with other civil rights organizations, had to become the attorney general. We had to be a private attorney general because I was under no illusion that Jeff Sessions would take up the banner of bringing Section 2 cases. And they didn't. As a matter of fact, I don't think there was one Section 2 case, maybe one Section 2 case that was filed. Uh, by the, the Trump uh, attorney general, by by the three uh, sessions, uh, Matthew, the, the uh, hot tub salesman at Orbar. So so then you have an abdication of the obligation. And you think that the intention of Congress was that black people would just lose the right that had been fought for. Uh, during that period. It's absurd. It's illogical. It's it's on its face, patently ridiculous. But more important, it is a usurpation and a power grab by um, one judge com- feeling communicated to. And I think we should think a little bit about that. The signals that they are getting from individual justices and the ways in yeah. which they are taking up those signals. This is a usurpation of uh, power and of the judicial function. And that is the only thing I would add to your opening description of how serious this is. It will make its way up to the Supreme Court. I hope that Chief Justice Roberts, who refused to allow Alabama to dictate um, the meaning of Section 2 in the Milligan case, will be as outraged by a federal district judge deciding over the Supreme Court what the law is. Um, It's not something we can count on, but it is something we can hope for. This is outrageous, and it really shows us what the stakes are. Indeed. I, I don't know that I'm going to put much faith in John Roberts, whose whole most of his adult yeah. life has been spent trying to undo and destroy the Voting Rights Act. He's very opposed to the Voting Rights Act. Uh, this is frightening. And I think everyone should pay very close attention to this because the same court that said that somebody who doesn't make wedding cakes has standing to sue as a private individual to say that no one has to make wedding cakes for gay couples and that yes. Ed Blum, who actually didn't find an Asian-American plaintiff, gets to upend affirmative action for everyone, but that only the attorney general of the United States apparently can sue for voting rights. And that won't happen if Donald Trump is president. Just understand voting rights and the Voting Rights Act will be done. Sherilyn Eiffel, um, thank you. Thank you for making the time. Um, we thank say scaring is carrying on this show. Thank you. Everyone pay attention to what's happening. This is why you got to vote. Up next on the readout, the Republican senator goes all in on a debunked conspiracy theory as the new House speaker releases almost all of the video footage of that terrible day. Congressman Jamie Raskin, a member of the January 6th committee, joins me next. Today and every day, Planned Parenthood is committed to ensuring that everyone has the information and resources they need to make their own decisions about their bodies, including abortion care. Lawmakers who oppose abortion are attacking Planned Parenthood, which means affordable, high-quality, basic health care for more than 2 million people is at stake. 
The right to control our bodies and get the health care we need has been stolen from us. And now, politicians in nearly every state have introduced bills that would block people from getting the sexual and reproductive care they need. Planned Parenthood believes everyone deserves health care. It's a human right. That's why they fight every day to push for common-sense policies that protect our right to control our own bodies and against policies that interfere with decisions between patients and their doctor. Planned Parenthood needs your support now more than ever. With supporters like you, we can reclaim our rights and protect and expand access to abortion care. Visit PlannedParenthood.org future. That's PlannedParenthood.org future. You'd be forgiven if you don't remember Ray Epps, one of the self-proclaimed Trump supporters who pleaded guilty for his involvement on January 6th and became the subject of wild conspiracy theories. The allegation, amplified by Tucker Carlson, was that Epps secretly worked as a federal agent that day. Epps decided to sue Fox News for defamation, noting that after the accusations were aired on Tucker's show, Republicans tried to link Epps to conspiracy theories, suggesting he was involved in planning the attack. Among them, Texas Senator Ted Cruz. Epps testified to the House January 6th committee that the theories had ruined his life. But the conspiracy theory that federal agents were involved or somehow orchestrated the violence on January 6th has metastasized into the Republican Party writ large, especially now that House Speaker Mike Johnson has rewarded the MAGA fringe by pledging to release nearly all January 6th footage. Utah Senator Mike Lee was quick to join the effort to whitewash the deadly insurrection, attacking former January 6th committee member Liz Cheney after she posted video of the violence on social media. Lee wrote, P.S., how many of these guys are feds? As if you'd ever tell us. Taking the conspiracy theories further, Lee also reposted a former West Virginia legislator who questioned if an insurrectionist in an image was flashing a badge. Lee wrote, I can't wait to ask FBI Director Christopher Wray about this at our next oversight hearing. Reporters were quick to point out the image actually shows January 6th defendant Kevin Lyons, a self-proclaimed idiot who, among other things, stole a photo of John Lewis and a staffer's wallet from then-Speaker Nancy Pelosi's office and has been sentenced to four years in prison. As for that supposed badge, it appears to be a vape pen that Lyons was seen holding in other images from that day. But the specious badge conspiracy was unsurprisingly also embraced by Marjorie Taylor Greene, who initially mentioned the badge in a since-deleted line in a lengthy rant calling for a new investigation of January 6th and who claimed MAGA didn't do it. Joining me now is Congressman Jamie Raskin of Maryland, who served on the January 6th Select Committee. Congressman, um, the conspiracy theorists have gone from saying January 6th was just a calm and peaceful tourist visit to now saying, yeah, it was violent, but the feds did it. Interesting switch uh, in their storyline. What do you make of the fact that Mike Lee, a supposed serious person and United States senator, has joined in? Well, they're constantly shifting apologies and rationales for what happened on that day. I mean, half the time they're saying it was feds in Antifa 
who were the people in the mob that stormed the Capitol. The other half of the time, they're saying they're political prisoners and hostages and they should be released immediately or pardoned. Uh, those things are obviously in complete contradiction. If it was really Antifa and federal agents, why would Marjorie Taylor Greene and Matt Gates be spending all this time trying to get them out of jail? They know exactly who's in there. It was the right-wing mega mob that Donald Trump recruited to go there, but they're trying to bury the whole event in disinformation and propaganda. So there's confusion. And thank God we've got all of this uh, security footage and tapes and uh, TV cameras uh, taking pictures of it, because if there was nothing visual, they would be denying that the whole thing happened. And, you know, that is the ultimate destination of authoritarian movements like Donald Trump's. They just try to whitewash and wipe out history. Let me play... Um and I, again, I apologize for making you listen to something stupid. Uh, but this is a Representative Clay Higgins uh, of Louisiana questioning FBI Director Chris Wray last week in the Homeland Security, uh, uh, Homeland Security Committee hearing. Take a listen. Can you confirm that the FBI had that sort of engagement with your own agents embedded within to the crowd on January 6th? If you are asking whether the violence at the Capitol on January 6th was part of some operation orchestrated by FBI sources and or agents, the answer is emphatically You're saying not. no. No. You're saying no. Not okay. violence orchestrated Let's by FBI on. sources or agents. I mean, a lot of this, it feels very performative. Um, he's sort of blown up uh, in MAGA uh, social media by doing that. But, you know, it's one thing for him to do it. I think Mike Lee is a different thing, though, because, you know, Mike Lee sort of styles himself as some sort of constitutional conservative and intelligent person. The fact that a senator is doing it to me is a different level. Um, what do you think the end game is here? Because as you said, they keep changing their storyline. If they want to now have new hearings where they try to blame the FBI for doing January 6th, what it, do, can you even fathom what their end game is for saying that? I mean, that is an essentially authoritarian and fascist tactic to try to confuse everyone. I mean, it is a you know, I mean, this goes back to what the totalitarian movements of the 1930s and the kinds of tricks and lies that they told. But what's interesting is that during the impeachment trial, uh, Trump's lawyers were very emphatic to say, we denounce what happened here. We have nothing to do with what happened here. Donald Trump had nothing to do with it. I urged him to say that that would always be their position because you could see that already the political wheels were turning to try to rewrite the history of it. But in a legal sense, they pretended to divorce themselves from what had happened. But now they're in a, you know, a full-fledged embrace of the mega violence that took place. And that is a hallmark of an authoritarian movement. They don't accept election results that don't go their way, and they refuse to renounce or they openly embrace political violence as a tactic for achieving political power. Mike Lee doesn't really surprise me. Um, he entered a completely disruptive and vacuous objection in the middle of the impeachment trial. So he's been trying to confuse things from the very beginning. And he's essentially on the side of those who are saying they will use any means necessary, including violence, to put Donald Trump into power and to keep him into power. 
Yeah, and, and he has also admitted he wants to get rid of Social Security. I think that's the, his end game. And by the way, he also ran. They all ran. They all claimed it wasn't an insurrection, yet they were all running with everyone else terrified of that mob. And I will note that the Colorado judge who ruled that Trump is able to stay on the ballot also said he engaged in insurrection. They also said it wasn't insurrection. I want to go to a little bit uh, a separate issue just for a moment. There is now um, a big fight over this gag order um, and a, a, a gag order uh, that the Trump campaign would like taken away. And Judge Chutkin there, the claim is that it makes a terrible precedent. Let me just let you listen to Trump's lawyer. His name is John Sauer, arguing about the precedential problem of having a gag order on Donald Trump. Take a listen. Gag order in this case installs a single federal district judge as a filter for core political speech between a leading presidential candidate and virtually every American voter in the United States at the very height of a presidential campaign. The order is unprecedented, and it sets a terrible precedent for future restrictions on core political speech. Congressman Sauer also argued that there was no evidence that Donald Trump's words have led to violence or led to any threats of violence or harassment. I would just like to allow you to comment on that and on Sauer's arguments about free speech and candidates. Well, the, the first part is plainly false, as we saw from January 6th itself, when Donald Trump, um, you know, invade to the crowd that they needed to go and to fight and fight like hell or they wouldn't have a country anymore. And when there's cheating involved, there's a whole different set of rules. And the courts are starting to find exactly what we asserted at the impeachment trial, which is that even if you want to treat him like a bum on the street and not the president of the United States, he falls well within the Brandenburg, Brandenburg rule, which says that your speech is not protected if you're inciting imminent lawless action, for example, violence against the government. So that's clearly wrong. In any event, um, his case is just like everybody else's case in the country. When you're before a court, you have a right to engage in all the political free speech you want. You just can't engage in speech that would materially undermine the integrity of the proceedings by trying to intimidate or prejudice jurors or witnesses. And that's all that's at stake here. In most cases that I've seen like this, if somebody actually does use their speech to intimidate a juror or, of course, try to uh, threaten somebody or bribe somebody, they're thrown into jail. Um, yes. So a, a gag order is just an attempt to avoid that ultimate outcome. Yeah, absolutely. He's uh, getting a, a big pass because he was a former president. Uh, Congressman Jamie Raskin, thank you, as always. Cheers. And still ahead, President Biden rejects calls for a ceasefire in Gaza as the global divide over Israel's actions generates increasingly strong feelings on both sides of the conflict. We're back after this. It's Monday, everyone. We're happy to have you here on this Monday night. Lots of news to get to tonight. Make more of your Mondays on MSNBC with Jen Psaki and Rachel Maddow back to back. If you were talking to a voter, what would you say to them about why this case matters to them? Was this the kind of proceeding you would expect in a typical New York DA's case, or does this really feel different? Inside with Jen Psaki at 8 p.m. Eastern, followed by The Rachel Maddow Show at 9, Mondays on MSNBC. Monday night. Hi everyone, it's Katie Fang. Did you know my weekly show on MSNBC is now available as a podcast? With my decades of experience as a trial lawyer, you'll get an insider's perspective on all things legal. At a time when politics and the law are inextricably intertwined, my guests and I break down what's next and why it matters, both inside and outside the courtroom. 
Search for The Katie Fang Show wherever you're listening and follow. This conflict between Israel and Gaza has divided not just the region, but the entire world. And we're seeing a stark contrast in just how different world leaders are responding to the conflict. President Biden, in an op-ed this weekend in The Washington Post, doubled down on his full support for Israel and his opposition to a ceasefire, even as Israel's ground assault in the Gaza Strip continued with forces entering a second hospital and with the death toll in Gaza now topping 13,000. Biden's stance places him at odds with parts of his own coalition at home and with the French president and Irish leaders and with many non-European nations who are echoing the ceasefire calls that we're seeing on American campuses in protests and from groups like Jewish Voice for Peace. The president of South Africa last week filed a referral to the International Criminal Court for an investigation into what he calls war crimes being committed by Israel in Gaza. This conflict highlights what has been a growing rift between what's called the Global South and the West, whose post-World War II order, led by the U.S., has largely produced wealth and political stability for Europe, with obvious huge exceptions like Ukraine, but that for over a century has delivered colonialism, slavery, and exploitation for resource-rich but economically poor developing countries in what we used to call the Third World, particularly in Africa, whose countries have faced constant wars, coups, and political unrest. But in just a matter of years, they are like they are expected to be a major global powerhouse. As the New York Times writes, the population there is projected to nearly double to 2.5 billion over the next quarter century, an era that will not only transform many African countries, experts say, but also radically reshape the relationship with the rest of the world. Joining me now is Naira Haq, former senior advisor for the State Department, former White House senior director and MSNBC columnist. And John Brennan, former CIA director and MSNBC senior national security analyst. Thank you both for being here. Uh, Nayara, it, it, it is a shifting world. And the Israel conflict, I think, it, it didn't start it. It just highlights it because there definitely is a difference between the way the global South feels about the conflict and the way the U.S. and most of Europe, excepting Fran the leaders of France and Ireland, feel about it. Um, talk a little bit about how that how, why that matters and how that will impact other issues that the U.S. has around the world. So much of what we hear right now about the United States as a global power is falling on the ears of a generation that has grown up in the wake of 9-11, U.S. involvement in Iraq and Afghanistan. And that had devastating consequences for the Middle East and throughout uh, the United States as well, whether it be civil rights or just the broader understanding of what it means to Oh, I think Nair is frozen. Okay, we're gonna let we're gonna let uh, the interwebs get themselves together. We 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 love a a little technical difficulty, so we're gonna let that work out. I'm gonna go to you, John Brennan. Um, you know, when when you know my father was was a young man growing up in the Democratic Republic of Congo, there was this sort of contest between Moscow and Washington over who was going to get the young men of the continent in these newly liberated countries that had been beset by colonialism and, you know, what Belgium did to the Congo, 20 million people dead, lots of bad feelings with the West. But the West basically won the contest largely for young African men to come. Barack Obama's father, lots of people came to the United States, were educated here. And the West kind of was winning that war. 
Now it seems it's kind of going the other way. Um, China recently welcomed Arab and Muslim foreign ministers on talks on ending the war in Gaza. This is the quote um, from the Associated Press today. China's top diplomat wintered the, the, uh, welcomed the ministers from Saudi Arabia, Egypt, Jordan, the Palestinian Authority, and Indonesia to Beijing, saying his country would work with our brothers and sisters in the Arab and Islamic world to try to end the war in Gaza as soon as possible. You've had Chinese and Russian officials visiting African nations, um, cultivating relationships. You've had a real resistance to jumping on board the pro-Ukraine stance in lots of African nations. And now the same thing is happening with more African nations siding with Gaza. Is the U.S. becoming isolated from this global South, which is going to represent a huge portion uh, of the economy in the coming years? Well, I think, as you point out, Joy, uh, there is growing sentiment in the third world, in the developing world, that there is this um, concern uh, that the United States and the West is has been exploiting uh, those these countries for many, many years. And uh, now, unfortunately, given that we have seen for the past six plus weeks in Gaza, uh, the continued civilian deaths uh, that have taken place as a result of Israeli uh, strikes, uh, I think it's generating a lot of sympathy, empathy for the Palestinian people who have been on their own quest for nationhood and statehood. So I think a lot of people, especially in Africa, that have had to struggle for decades uh, in the past uh, number of years for their own statehood, they can relate to that. But I do think that they see this, uh, the, the bloodshed, the pain, the suffering of individuals, and they see it at the hands, quite frankly, of a of an advanced country such as Israel that is supported and backed by the West. Israel is advanced economically, technologically, a big, powerful military against the Palestinian people. So I think it's being seen through that prism that this is something that, again, the West is responsible for. And, and there's not the, the same understanding of of the, the the years of conflict that really have I think beset the this uh, this part of the world. You know, and also in in the case of, of Africa specifically, this is a very young population. Um, uh, you know, it's it's the youngest population of of all of the world, and one in four uh, very soon uh, humans on the earth are going to be African, and this is young these are young people. Um, is part of the issue here that there is this sort of new understanding? There's a, there's a growing sort of Pan Africanism on the continent, and a growing understanding of the past in a new way of saying, you know, what we this colonial history, we want to now address it. And there's a lot of anger at Europe and the West, right? A lot of anger at France, a lot of anger at the United States. Absolutely. And I think a lot of it is understandable given their their history. But also, I think this is a reflection of the world that we live in right now in terms of just the availability of the communication system, social media, the fact that they can turn on TV and look at the, what's happening in a, in a real-time way. And so, therefore, particularly the younger generations who are very technically savvy, uh, they have their cell phones no matter where they are uh, throughout Africa or the rest of the developing world. They see what is happening there, and there is this resentment about the West it's basically the struggle between the haves and the have-nots. And I think there's just natural sympathy for those individuals who may, in fact, be similarly oppressed or what the, they view to be oppressed by by the West. And given that the United States is such a staunch supporter of Israel, um, they tend to identify the United States uh, with what is happening in Gaza. And I think that is uh, unfortunate in terms of attributing some of this violence or bloodshed uh, to the United States.
Yeah, and I think a lot of people don't know that for a very, very long time, the, the South African, you know, the African National Congress, et cetera, have always been sort of identified with, have been very identified with the Palestinian uh, movement, um, freedom movement. Uh, I have Nayira back. Look, the gremlins have, have released her. Uh, Nayira, let, let, let's talk about I think one of the big issues that I've seen people talk about is the coal tent issue in Democratic Republic of Congo, what people call a slow motion genocide. The fact that the resources under the feet of people in Africa are riches. You know, they, they sort of describe the Africa as sort of all it's all Wakanda. They've all got gold and coal tan and oil and everything else, but they don't profit from it. The West relies on it, sucks those resources out and becomes super rich. They get really nothing for it. Um, and so it, how does that end up getting rebalanced? Does can the West rebalance this relationship and allow these countries to profit more from their own resources in a way that makes things more equal? And should they do it? Because it seems that they're definitely losing the hearts and minds. Well, we're talking about the entire colonial structure, right, and what's been left afterwards in which colonialists, mostly the West, um, you know, some of what we now uh, see as Spain and Hispanic, but also part of this colonial project, that they went into countries, they took over, they also raised up a group of indigenous people to be the effective overseers. That's who's left in charge of many of these countries, whether it be Afghanistan or the Congo. And so you now have this power class that is deeply corrupt, is also deeply invested in benefiting personally from the extraction. And you, we don't have an international regime that is good at addressing that. Uh, so, you know, we talk about democracy and how expanding democracy will bring human rights to many countries. That's not the reality on the ground for many places where democracy is also synonymous with massive corruption. If you look at global surveys, you see not only that the majority majority of the African continent is under the age of 25 years old, you also yeah. find that they are some of the uh, people with the least resources and least access. Yeah, this is a, a very interesting, important conversation. I want to keep having it. And so I'm glad we got a chance to get it started tonight. Naira Hawk, uh, thank you. For, I'm glad you were released from the uh, the spell of the of the of the demons of, of technology. Thank you. I'm glad you were here. And Director John Brennan, thank you both. We always appreciate y'all. We'll be right back. There are some indications that President Biden may be falling behind with a key constituency for him, black voters. A new NBC News poll shows that while 69 percent of black voters support Biden, 20 percent are considering voting for Donald Trump. It's a big number, considering that in 2020, 87 percent of black voters voted for Biden and only 12 percent voted for Trump. Less than a year out from the election, it's imperative to know what black voters are thinking. And the Black Census Project does just that. It is a stunning deep dive into what's happening in Black America, surveying more than 200,000, the largest national survey of Black people in America. And joining me now, uh, we have an exclusive pre preview of some of that data from the Black Futures Lab. Alicia Garza, principal of the Black Futures Lab, uh, is right here with me joining me now. Uh, first of all, Alicia, congratulations on this. 200,000. That's a heck of a number. It is the largest survey. Uh, as somebody who's a polling geek, I'm very excited that you all got this done. Um, first, talk about what was the impetus for it? Thank you, Joy. It's so good to be here with you. You know, the impetus for this project was to make sure that we don't have to guess what Black people are going to think, do, or experience. We went out and we talked to 200,000 
Black people across the nation from different demographics inside of prisons and jails. We tried to make sure that we got a representative sample of who Black people are in America so that we can increase and improve our outreach, engagement, and activation of Black voters. Our work is all about making Black people powerful in politics so that we can be powerful in the rest of our lives. And that work starts first and foremost with listening, talking to people about what they deal with every day and what they want to see for their futures, and then making sure that we advocate with those people to get those things that we need. So let's let's dig into these numbers. I I went through the top lines. It's fascinating stuff. Some of the things are not super surprising. The Democratic Party favorable 6922. It's a little less favorable than probably people would think. Republican Party, very, very unfavorable 784. Uh, The numbers for Trump, very similar to that. But here's one that I thought was really interesting. Top three issues. Low wages that are not enough to sustain a family was the biggest plurality, 38%. Gun violence, um, 33%. Schools that fail to prepare children adequately, 31%. And police issues were number four and number six. Affordable housing is number five. Talk a little bit about that, because there's a lot of people who are asking, why is Biden underwater on the economy? That number to me says a lot. Low wages that are not enough to sustain a family. It should absolutely say a lot. What black voters care about are the things that most Americans care about. We care about making sure that we can put food on our tables and keep a roof over our head. We care about making sure that we can make it home at night, even if we're stopped uh, by police in a traffic stop. We care about the fact that our history is not being taught in our schools. And so we are inadequately preparing our kids to navigate an increasingly diverse but difficult world. And certainly we care about the fact that, uh, you know, millions of people um, are being affected and impacted by gun violence every day. And the way that we talk about those issues is as if only white communities deal with that. But certainly black communities care about it. This is going to be very important in 2024 when we say what's going to turn black voters out to the polls, what's going to get black voters to take a stand. Well, quite frankly, Joy, it's taking issues. It's taking action on the issues that we care about. And if we don't see victories and improvements and wins in issues of gun violence, uh, police violence, uh, uh, issues of low wages and inflation, uh, issues of improving in our schools and making sure uh, that our children are being taught our history, um, we are going to see not black voters vote for Republicans. That's not what this data shows or any of the data shows. What we're going to see is more black voters staying home and deciding not to participate. How can folk get uh, into this data and dig into it more and, 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 you know, interact with the Black Futures Lab? Well, you can definitely visit us on our website at blackfutureslab.org. But in February, we will be releasing what we call a Black Economic Agenda for 2024. This is a roadmap of actionable policies that not just this administration, but state legislators can take right now to make sure that we are making progress on the issues that Black communities care about. If anybody wants to secure Black votes in 2024, they would be wise uh, to pay attention to the Black economic agenda and to make sure that they're accessing this data just as we are, to have meaningful conversations and engagement with Black communities who currently are and have been one of the strongest constituencies for the Democratic Party and certainly one of the most active. 
Yeah, one of the 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 the, the, the data points I thought was fascinating was eighty seven percent I believe said, "Oh, we're voting." You know, the people these are voters. Like the people that you're talking with are, are active and are, are willing to vote, but they're breaking down the issues that will get them there, right? That will get them to vote up and Absolutely. down that ballot. There it is, eighty two percent registered to vote. That's a huge, huge number. It seems like a victory for the civil rights movement, right? Eighty two percent respondents registered to vote. Well, it's very important, and Black people are very politically active. Uh, what we should understand is that um, a wide majority of people who took this survey said that they are talking to their friends and family about politics all the time. That is something that we need to pay attention to. And for our work, we make sure that we are knocking doors and in people's communities, not talking about what we want to talk about, but talking about what they talk want to talk about and connecting it to the people that have power over the decisions that impact their lives. This is uh, huge. Uh, the, the, this, this is huge. The, um, this survey uh, is historic. And I want to congratulate you, Alicia Garza, and thank you for coming on and sharing that data with us. And uh, the next one, please come back and give us an exclusive again. We love the exclusive. <laughs> oh, we would love to. Thanks for having me. And my dad says he loves you. <laughs> oh, thank you. Thanks. Tell dad thank you. All right. Appreciate you. We'll be right back. <laughs> Former First Lady Rosalind Carter passed away yesterday at the age of 96, half of the longest married first couple in American history. Her role as First Lady was groundbreaking, entirely changing the way the job was done. Some of her most meaningful work was on expanding mental health care, pushing to destigmatize treatment and testifying before Congress on mental health reform, the second time a First Lady had ever done that. She was a pioneer and historic figure in her own right, and we send our condolences to her family, including her husband former President Jimmy Carter. And that is tonight's readout. Go beyond the headlines with the new MSNBC app. Get real-time analysis from live blogs to in-depth essays, video highlights from your favorite shows, and the latest updates on the 2024 election. Visit msnbc.com app to download.